0: Hello there and welcome to the first ever episode of the Psychare UK podcast, Frontiers in Harm Reduction. I'm Rodri Karim, trainee, psychotherapist and long-time field volunteer with the charity. For those of you new to our work, Psychare UK offers transformative welfare and psychedelic harm reduction. We offer advice and interventions to reduce the risk of drug taking. But the core of our work is supporting people through crisis, whether drug-induced or otherwise at festivals and events across the UK, and occasionally in Europe too. Our service is based on the premise that with the right support in the right circumstances, a bad trip can be transformed into a meaningful breakthrough experience. As part of this series, we'll be meeting the intrepid souls and dedicated practitioners working at the face of the psychedelic renaissance. These are folks exploring the meaning, structure, and possibilities of these extraordinary states of mind, including the dangerous, harmful, or just plain confusing territory that can be opened up when we take the business of meaning-making into our own hands. The narrative around psychedelics currently emphasizes the transformative potential of these so-called wonder drugs, and misses out the real pitfalls that can come with exploring these expansive states of mind. We'll be exploring the wider context of psychedelic plants, culture, philosophy, and experience, and having a go at the eternal question which psychedelics have once again confronted us with, who gets to decide what we experience and how we make sense of it. Our first guest on the podcast is philosopher, writer, and researcher Jules Evans, lately of the Centre for the History of the Emotions at Queen Mary, University of London. Jules is the author of numerous books on practical philosophy, the stuff that aims to make a real difference to our human suffering and flourishing. And he's also been writing personally about the history of fascism and spiritual movements and the phenomenon of conspirituality, the crossover between paranoid conspiracy theory and New Age woo subcultures. His current project is the Challenging Psychedelic Experiences Survey, which will be feeding into a research project to map out the emerging discipline of psychedelic integration, namely, how do we reconcile our psychedelic experiences with the everyday? If you've had any kind of challenging psychedelic experience, please do go and fill out the survey. You can find it at challengingpsychedelicexperiences.com. All one word. We had a wide-ranging romp around Jules' own experience of recovering from a bad trip, near-death experiences, philosophy and ecstasy, ecstasis, that is, not MDMA, and the profound ambivalence of psychedelics. They can be both medicines or weapons, depending on cultural context. I hope you enjoy the ride and get in touch if this sparks any thoughts. You can reach me at Rodri at psychareuk.org. Now, without further ado, let's hear from Jules. So yeah, we're here with Jules, Jules Evans, uh, writer on topics as wide ranging as ecstatic experience, philosophy Mm -hmm. for life, psychedelic integration and conspirituality. And yeah, welcome Jules, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Rodri. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to discuss stuff. We've had, some, we've had some kind of preliminary discussions about where, what kind of slice we can take out of, out of a very out broad of experience. Me, yeah, out of my head. Out of your head, slice out of your head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. hopefully it won't disturb what's in there too much. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, what would maybe be a nice place to start with is, um, yeah, so this is a podcast about the frontiers in harm reduction. And I'd love to hear about how you came to be involved in this field in the first place. Why it's yeah.
1: a, an area of interest for you? Sure. Um, so I keep meeting uh, people who 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 are new to psychedelics in their mid thirties. Uh, I, I was just at a conference of of entrepreneurs, and and they're all like, "Yes, I, just this this year, I've been on a journey with psychedelics, and I tried first mushrooms." And they're like, they're like thirty five or something. I I don't know about you, but, uh, but I first took LSD when I was fifteen. <laughs> you know, like, uh, um, so I got into psychedelics quite young, and I was almost done with them by eighteen. Mm-hmm. So I had three years of it, uh, uh, at school of in, you know intense experimentation, as did lots of my friends. We were, I would actually say, at my school there was a kind of like a spike, an epidemic. You know, it just became the culture and lots of us were doing lots of drugs Um, and we were going raving. I mean, uh, going to clubs in London at at 16, going to uh, there's a certain vintage of listener listening, like kind of techno clubs in the mid 90s. When I go jogging now, I still listen to mixed mixes from the mid 90s (laughs) of like drum and bass and so on. Um, And that was all good fun. But um, friends started wiping out. Um, friends uh, damaged themselves from all the drugs they were taking. Um, uh, My best friend uh, had a kind of psychotic break, which was mixed in with his cannabis and uh, psychedelic taking. And I don't know whether it would have happened anyway. But um, 30 years on, he's still in the kind of uh, underworld, as it were, of of, of kind of paranoid schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Um, other friends, yeah had major psychological problems. Some died, some went to prison um and I also had problems like so by my last year at school, when I was seventeen, I was becoming strung out uh because I was smoking so much dope and and doing so much other stuff i, I my mental health was degrading, mm. I could tell um and after I left school um okay I had a I took um what I think was LSD uh at a, at a club uh at a kind of rave in East London and you know it, uh, it turned into a it's a bad trip and I, I was with people I didn't know very well so I was ticking the boxes for how not to do psychedelics wasn't sure what I had taken didn't really know the people I was taking it with wasn't really a kind of Uh, warm, safe, sympathetic context. And I became very um, paranoid and self-conscious and kind of frozen um, and came out of that experience with this strong, firm belief, I've messed myself up. Like I've screwed, I've permanently screwed up my brain. Mm. And what, uh, years later now researching this topic, I realized that people who sometimes get into medium to long-term difficulties after bad trips often have that very strong belief, Mm. I've messed up my brain. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um, And that's, I think, what happened in my case. So there were various things that meant, uh, that I believe meant that that bad trip turned into several years of mental illness, Mm -hmm. um, of social anxiety and PTSD. Uh, First of all, I didn't talk to anyone about it uh, because I I, I was... I was in a culture of, you know, stigma around mental illness. Mm. So I didn't tell my my parents. I was still living with my parents, you know, 18 years old. Didn't even tell my friends um, and just kind of hid it, uh, buried it. Uh, So that made it much more likely that it was going to kind of turn into like unresolved trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose that was the main thing really and just not not seeking help. And then when I did finally seek help at university um, about... Uh, two years later, I went to see one psychiatrist. He um, he said this is just normal adolescent problems. You know, just deal with it. Here's some beta blockers. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, finally, I after I did my finals at university, I had a, like a mini breakdown. Was sent to another psychiatrist. He said, "Okay, you got um, PTSD from this from this bad trip, but I can cure you in two sessions." with something called EMDR. Uh, have you heard of that? Indeed, yeah, I've had you, it. You've had it? Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, where, he, as he explained it to me, you think of the traumatic situation and move your eyes left and right. Mm. Um, he said that, we're going to do two sessions of that and also i can going to teach you tapping techniques, which is what I think Prince Harry does for his unresolved trauma. So you tap your kind of hand and your head and so on. And I thought, really, wow, I've had PTSD for six years and you can cure me in two sessions. And it didn't work um, for me. So that's, um, and I finally did find things that helped me. Um, What the things that helped me were um, cognitive behavior therapy and stoic philosophy. So that is why I'm interested in mental health. That's why I'm interested in philosophy. Um, That's why I write about all this stuff. And that's why I'm now researching um, psychedelic harm reduction. And, and and how to help people who also have kind of bad trips.
0: Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. And it sounds like real material to to motivate you to to make a difference.
1: Even though I, don't, I think there are bigger issues in the world, as it were, I know that there are people in similar situations, because I get emails from them who've like, they're terrified, because um, they're like, uh, you know, my mental health has completely changed after this experience. Uh, and And... Is this permanent? Who do I turn to? And they, and I know that there's um, still basically no evidence about what helps people. You could go to a, a healer or an integration expert or a psychiatrist, but none of them are, are operating from an evidence-based framework yet because we don't have evidence on this. Mm. So the healer might say anything. The healer might say, uh, my cousin also had uh, difficulties after taking drugs. He went to see a healer and the healer said well it's because you're um you were a nazi in a previous life so we just got to resolve that you know right. that doesn't make it better <laughs> you know that makes it worse that's so
0: quite hard to resolve actually
1: yes what are you <laughs> going to do um so um so that's you know so so i'm i'm you know i just re- you know remember how miserable i was and
0: how frightened and i'm noticing and not to veer into my therapist persona here, but yeah. something that feels kind of interesting to talk about here is the sort of finality of that experience, and yeah. the sense of com- the conviction, yeah, and also the sense of hiding, the sense of being yes. alone with, yeah, and what I, I suppose, yeah, I'm interested how like what you're exploring now, how that kind of counteracts those qualities. Yes. Finality, aloneness,
1: overwhelmedness. Yes. Well, so first of all, the hiding. I mean, that's that's definitely true. I had nightmares at that time of um, kind of classic Jungian nightmares of um, being chased by a kind of monster outcast figure. Mm. So it was like the kind of, dis- the, the parts of me I had dissociated returning in a kind of vengeful form and I was like oh they're threatening me and I've got to be on the run um I had a persona at that time of of being very confident and socially confident and so this didn't fit with that and so there was a kind of splitting Mm. of, of the persona which I was trying to just keep up to myself and everyone else and the kind of very wounded parts of me which I was hiding um yeah so there was definitely a kind of Hide and seek game. I think it's so different. Like to to people now, where young people like they disclose their 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 diagnoses on their like you know TikTok profiles and stuff. And that's the like the first thing people say. Mm. But it's not. It was not like that uh, thirty years ago. People didn't even really talk about depression or anxiety, mm. let alone now where there's like you know I'm uh, I'm bipolar and I'm this and I'm that. You know, so. um so that was definitely, and, you know, the first time I, I, I talked about it to some of my closest friends was um, in about, well, I, I did, a, I was, I can't remember. Oh, yes, I'll tell you what happened. Um, I interviewed, um, I started to write about this. I started to write about mental health. I'd been a business journalist for 10 years mm. in Russia and in various places. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, what I really care about his mental health and philosophy. And I went to do an interview um, with the guy who'd invented cognitive behavior therapy, Albert Ellis. Yeah. Uh, and I started to write about how CBT had helped me. And I was interviewed by... The Observer asked if they could interview me. They had a column on mental health and they interviewed me about having social anxiety. And and they they published it with the headline, The Man Who Is Terrified of Social Contact, which is like a real B-movie kind of... Uh, Title. Quite monstrous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, fucking hell, now, now this now this is public. Um, and then I started to write about it more. Um, so that's how I dealt with that, is I I just started to talk about it more. And, you know, that's... But I think I only really started talking about it from a position of, I've kind of, to some extent, got better. You know, okay. when I was to some extent out of it, I think it, it's, it would have been much harder to talk about in it, you know, because mm-hmm. I was so frightened like, yeah. I'm not going to get out of this. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of blown it. But.
0: And that's the quality of that state. And I suppose it's interesting in the sense that it's the quality of that state to hide it, it's quality of state to keep it to yourself, to not. To avoid PTSD mm-hmm. and its nature is about really avoiding the stimuli that cause it. Yeah. So it's the sort of. uh I'm trying to think of the right turn of phrase here but you know you, yeah it would it would be kind of against the nature of trauma itself to, yeah. if it were to some if it were to be something that could be spontaneously healed from the inside yes and so it makes me think a little bit about context social context and I'm wondering yeah. if and if finding those things out there in the world like you say where's where does the stoic philosophy come into it because albert yeah. ellis was also massively influenced. into Sto- stoicism
1: yeah, yeah. So stoicism did help me. Um, Stoicism and CBT are very good, I think, for anxiety disorders. I mean, they helped some people anyway, and they definitely helped me. And I, you know, I had social anxiety. That's how, that's what happened during my bad trip. And that's how it then continued. I got kind of stuck in that pattern. Mm. Um, And stoicism helped me for that because it teaches you to focus on what you can control and to accept what you can't. Uh, and um, not to put too much value or emphasis on things outside of your control, which include things like status and reputation. Stoicism says, if you fixate on things out of your control, like your public reputation, and put all of your self-esteem on that, then you are going to be the slave of fortune. You're never going to have a kind of stable self. It will rise and fall on every fickle person's reaction to you. Mm -hmm. So the antidote for that kind of paranoia is to focus on what is in your control, your own beliefs. Like I can choose to accept myself even if other people don't. So that was just, that was really helpful. And also the basic idea that um, emotions are not really created by the world out there. They're created by your own perspective. So when you're the slave of social anxiety, you're constantly just reacting to triggers. And, And, but... And, and it's a revelation to realize, oh, I'm doing this to myself. It's not the mean, cruel world that's causing me suffering. It's myself. It's my own beliefs, the way I'm interpreting certain, you know, external stimuli, and the massive emphasis I'm putting on other people accepting me. And when you have that kind of uh, epiphany of realizing, oh, I'm doing it to myself, you can you can choose not to do it to yourself. So that was. I mean that I think that's a basic step actually in recovering from mental illness. A lot of the time is like, oh, I'm doing this to myself. This is to some extent in my control. Um, so so, you know, so stoicism really helped me in, in in that respect. And I and I, I then like my first book was was about the revival of Greek philosophies. That was ten years ago, and I. I organized the first gathering of Stoics for 2000 years. There were 10 of us in, in you know, San Diego. And then Stoicism got bigger and bigger. And we organized Stoicons, they're called, like with hundreds of people and thousands of people. And it's now become like Bitcoin and polyamory, like, you know, big deal, you're a Stoic, you know, uh, so what? But, uh, and, I, and I guess um, after having promoted it and written about it and researched it for a few years, I re- recognized the limits of stoicism as, as a kind of uh, way of life. Like it was, um, to me, uh, it was too it had the potential to be too individualistic and too mm-hmm. rationalistic. And it missed the importance of connections, relations, love, surrender, ecstatic experiences. So um, that's what I explored in, in my second book, The Art of Losing Control, which was mm-hmm. about uh, how we find ecstatic experiences and when they're, when are they good for us and when are they bad for us?
0: Mm, that's a very interesting topic and certainly one that's relevant to psychedelic culture, which is all about the creating the conditions for ecstatic experience. And yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned the sort of risk of individualism there with stoicism, because yeah. what? Because as we're talking, it seems like there's an experience of splitting, as you say. There's an unbearable mm. experience that causes us to a bad trip causes us to exile certain parts of ourselves mm. or there's something overwhelming and terrible that happens and that the opposite of that kind of disintegration would be integration mm. and so it sounds like although stoicism can support us to to remove our focus from things that are threatening yeah it doesn't necessarily encourage a culture of integration or a space or a field in which something because I'm interested in, so the Greeks, ancient Greeks, were very into altered states as well. Mm-hmm. Each yeah. Of, each of the philosophers, in a sense, was a was a was, I guess my understanding is that philosophy at that time was also something like what a transformative group kind of process mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. look like. You'd have there was a cultic aspect to it as well. Yeah. And that philosophers were offering something genuinely new in terms of the way we related to the world, and that there was an experiential component to that.
1: So, yeah, that that's right. Yes, all the stuff you yeah. Think? I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, I the last chapter of, of my of my book on Greek philosophy said like, ancient Greek culture wasn't just about rationality. There, there were all these cults uh, around Athens, which the which the um, philosophers were going to uh, the, the the Eleusinian Mysteries, which is you know maybe may have been a psychedelic ceremony, I'm persuaded by the evidence, which has existed for 2,500 years, and, and every philosopher you can name was an initiate there. And Cicero, who did more to bring Greek philosophy to, the, to the, kind of the rest of the world than anyone else, said, of all the gifts of ancient Greece, the Eleusinian mysteries is the greatest, so greater than philosophy. Um, so I was like, we can miss that out in our very rationalist, skeptical culture, that there were these two sides to ancient Greek culture: the rational and the ecstatic, and that's really the question that most fascinates me. Uh, you know, all the way through my my research is how to balance the rational and the ecstatic, mm. um, how to these different parts of our psyche, how how to keep them in balance, how they can talk to each other, um, work with each other, even though they're quite different. um, yeah so it was while researching that book The Art of Losing Control that I mean I, I researched it for about five years and it was it was quite a journey I mean another thing that by the by um that helped me to recover before I um before I found stoicism and CBT in fact the first thing that started helped me to start to recover from you know this all this mental illness was a a kind of near death experience I had uh when I was uh, 20, 24, 25, um, where I um, uh, my family, I've uh, got a Norwegian family, and we go to Norway every year, go skiing there. And th- this particular year, I think it was 2001, um, I fell off a mountain and I fell about 30 feet and had a kind of typical white light, new age cliche type experience of being immersed in a white light and feeling filled with love and feeling that um, there was something in me that was kind of okay and unbreakable. Um, and why that's important if you have PTSD is you feel broken at a deep level. Mm-hmm. You feel like your self is broken. And so that, and that near-death experience, maybe like psychedelics, was helpful because it was like, you know... It's just your everyday ego, which has some dents in it, but that's not all of you. There's something kind of, there's this deeper transcendent part of you which can't be harmed. So, you know, that was the, I mentioned this because it's not really that helpful to most people because what are you going to do? Jump off a mountain. But I mentioned it because it's it was one of the reasons why I was interested in ecstatic experiences. Because I was, I was like, well, I wasn't just helped by stoicism. I was helped by this ecstatic experience. So I wanted to know what was that What does it mean? And how can I um, connect deeper to it? And I tried to answer those questions um, for several years. And I don't think I succeeded, to be honest. Like, uh, I don't know what it means. And I'm not sure how to get that experience again, Mm. you know. But at least I tried, you know, I wrote a book about it. And if nothing else, I think, I hope that that book, in a tiny, tiny way uh, w- would shift our culture's attitude to this kind of experience. Uh, particularly British culture, I think, is still um, quite suspicious of and hostile to ecstatic experiences. Certainly when that book came out and I was doing talks about it in like Hay Festival or something, often the audience was quite uncomfortable you know, about talking about mystical experiences. Mm. Um so, yeah, I mean, I guess I, even though I failed to know what exactly that, th- those, that experience means or what I was connecting to, uh, and even though I failed to ever have an experience like that again, even though I've done you know, psychedelics again since then, mm-hmm. um, I, I do think I made the case of like, look, these experiences are often healthy uh, and these are the ways you can find them. But I also made the point in that book these ecstatic experiences aren't always healthy, that they can be um, bewildering, terrifying, dangerous. Mm. So I'm trying to help my culture to have, uh, our culture to have a balanced attitude, a mature attitude to ecstatic experiences, not completely averse and, and hostile to them, not fixated on them and obsessed by them, and, mm. uh, um, not naive in our relation to them, but to improve our kind of ecstatic literacy. Mm -hmm.
0: I think that's a really great way of putting it, a really good point. Mm. And I really like the word mature, and it's not one that gets maybe a huge amount of uh, support from the psychedelic culture as it is. And I'm reminded a bit of what Carl Jung says about psychedelics and his opinion about them, which is that they are dangerous and to be avoided. <clears throat> that the uh, I could get the quote but I'm going to try and paraphrase uh, Carl which is that you can get enough of the collective unconscious you can get enough of the field of human you know possibility and ecstasis through your dreams through your imaginings through what happens in the therapeutic process uh, and to chase after too much of these experiences um in a sense creates his point is that when we see things at that point we make a conscious decision either to ignore them or to make something of them Mm. before we have seen them we can be innocent in our in our unknowing collective Mm. unconscious but once we see we have a moral obligation to do something with it and do something about it because uh, because we're either consciously ignoring Mm. Or consciously moving towards something, so it's an interesting
1: wow.
0: way of yeah. thinking about stuff. He says essentially, like, okay, well, don't open Pandora's box unless you're willing to take responsibility for what you find in there. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering a little bit about what that means in terms of the yeah, the culture, the context, mm. um, what maturity. Because I'm I'm moved by how your experience when you were in your teens was meant to be positive and turned out negative was an ecstatic Mm. experience in which you started to feel isolated and start to feel overwhelmed. And then you fall off a mountain and have a positive (laughs) (laughs) experience. And so interested in the way in which something that was quite life threatening actually seemed to have qualities of safety and belonging and all of that to it. Yes. And so, Uh, yeah, yeah, there's,
1: yeah, I think that's right. Um, I don't know what to say about it. I mean, it was so, it was so odd. Um, but it was, it was definitely, I, I'm it was definitely the best experience of my life. Um, and yes, it was, it was this amazing feeling of, of liberation. I don't mean from, I mean, from the, the prison that I had made. Mm. Uh, and, I, you know, I was, yeah. I was in this white light because I know that, I came out of it and my uncle skied up and I heard him say, oh my God, because I was, I, you know, it was a bloody kind of mess. Um, so I know roughly that I was in that white light for about, um, probably about a minute. Mm. Um, and in that time, I wasn't really conscious of my body. Mm. Um, and I didn't, and I just, I remember I got this very strong uh, insight that, you know, what was causing my suffering was my beliefs it wasn't that i'd just you know um permanently damaged my brain or my or myself mm. um, yeah and th- that i was and that i was fine and and you know if you've had like serious mental illness for kind of 6 years and then you're kind of you get this reset i mean it's just you know it's just amazing uh and by the by, i so i was so high after that experience i was so like felt so in love with the world and kind of, you know, reconnected to the world and, you know, um, not paranoid and defensive anymore. However, you know, that high did wear off Mm -hmm. and the anxiety and depression habits came back. And that was really why I turned to CBT and stoicism because I realized I needed a systematic way to train my Mm. habits. Um,
0: which sounds like taking responsibility and sounds like maybe yeah. one way of looking at maturity. And
1: one Yeah, yeah, at- yeah. And and, and then, it, you know, it took years. I mean, it, it actually took years to get better mm-hmm. uh, and to build my kind of confidence back up. Um, I would say, you know, 10 years. And I, you know, and it took a long time. I mean, I didn't really have a relationship in my 20s. Like I wasn't capable of it, you mm-hmm. know. And in a way, that's why I had to move beyond stoicism, because stoicism is all about uh, being independent, but it doesn't teach you interdependence. It doesn't teach you to depend on others. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I tried to learn in my kind of 30s and 40s, basically.
0: Mm. Yeah. So in that sense, it sounds like what's going on here is a huge process of learning, uh, of Straying into areas of human experience, yeah, uh, that are out of the ordinary, if we could use that phrase, whatever mm. that phrase means, or like certainly things that you maybe didn't expect, mm. certainly things that maybe in your environment you didn't have the touchstones or the or the coordinates to make sense of without trying to find them, yeah, first, yeah, or maybe even having to make them up for yourself, yeah, and there's a sense of going into a very overwhelmed space and then a sense of going into a very surrendered space, very controlled yeah. space, very surrendered space. And then suddenly there's this, you know, as you say, like when you talk about then turning to CBT and turning to stoicism and mm. uh, then going beyond those things, it's the sound of somebody growing. Yeah. I mean, yes. Including more and more things.
1: Yeah, that's true. But, um, but, you know, I'm just thinking, I mean, it was also, it was a wreck as well. Yeah. Like, because this happened when I was 18 to a very ambitious young man mm-hmm. um, from a, from a you know, privileged background where there are lots of expectations. And, you know, through kind of self-chosen experiences, I, I, I'd become a kind of like a, a nervous wreck. Mm-hmm. I, I started a band when I lived in Russia called the nervous wrecks, <laughs> you know, cause that, that's how I felt, mm. um, you know, like so nervous that I couldn't even do a job interview. Um, and so I, I think this is what um, I know that there'll be, pe- there might be one person or, or a few people listen to this. It, it goes to have a similar thing. They, they have a bad drug experience when they're about 18 or so. And it's like, and it really impacts them and and their hopes and their kind of expectations and their status their and you know how other people see them as well so and and i can just to step you know to look at it objectively one of the things that really almost destroyed me was this this thought like you've blown it mm-hmm. you, you had all this all these opportunities you, you you were going towards this you know this shining A glorious future and you blew it and now you're in this you know you're in this alternate timeline Mm. um and and for a few years i couldn't accept that and when you can't accept where you are you know you're basically kind of committing suicide you know in a a slow burn way Mm. like i can't accept my life as it is um because it should be that and it's this and what I think helped me to get better was um, was when I learned to kind of n- not care so much like um, to shrug like to not see not care about my ambitions so much in a way I mean it, it, but like when you're 17, 18 your whole world is yeah. you and, and and your dreams and plans and I realized that okay like maybe my big dreams might not happen or whatever but like that's not the whole world you know so i learned to get a bit of detachment from my ego dreams um and i just think about it now like there's a risk as well of like you're you know when you get a bit better and if you start doing work in this area your ego says well now you it turns into the big redemption messiah kind of thing you know i like, i got better you can get better you know this kind mm-hmm. of thing and and that you know they, but they're still kind of like It's okay to just be, uh, to grieve for what happened. Like something bad happened and it made life harder in a way. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be the kind of hero, messiah narrative.
0: Mm. Um, Which is certainly what comes out in a lot of psychedelic culture at the moment. And the sort of transformative, the the wellness narrative.
1: Yeah. Or the angry activists narrative. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's someone. It's their fault. It's this person's fault. It's mm-hmm. the industry's fault. And mm-hmm. um, so,
0: but it's all about that gap, that huge gap between, as you say, your ego, your your dreams and desires. As the, as from that perspective, yeah. What I could have been.
1: What I could have been. What yeah. I should have been. Yes.
0: And that starts to now get into the place of when people have psychedelic experiences that are unbearably beautiful.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So how did, how yeah, how we how we cope with a world that is mundane and imperfect, and uh, prof- you know, in many ways profoundly disappointing and unsuitable for human life. Yes, versus the beatific <laughs> vision that we might encounter in the ecstatic or psychedelic state, and I'm thinking particularly of people who have truly breakthrough experiences, mm. uh, and with DMT or ayahuasca, and then might struggle with the extraordinarily different the huge gap
1: yes yeah so i submitted a paper with another researcher called um anna lute um, i might have mispronounced her surname i really need to learn to pronounce that surname probably just get <laughs> it nailed um and uh she, if you
0: can write in and let us know that be-
1: yeah she's a researcher at the university of sydney and she wrote a great book about difficult meditation experiences Uh, which, again, are often marginalized, not really talked about in in, um, Buddhist and Hindu culture. And she and I, uh, well, she's she's been doing a PhD, uh, doing interviews with people after mushroom retreats uh, at Synthesis in Holland. And she found that something like um, a third of her participants, um, a third or a quarter of of the the interviewees, uh, Without really her seeking to find out about this, volunteered that that they found the days after their experience challenging. So we we thought we'd write a paper on this kind of you know post experience integration challenges, Um, and 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 one of them was um, was kind of a homesickness, uh, like for the experience, like this or this feeling of um, post ecstatic blues we call it. and it's, which is kind of what you're you you're talking about as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the um the 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 come down from from an experience that's intensely beautiful, and then and then uh, life is mundane, and that's hard, and and, and that can lead to. Um, this is something that uh, Mark uh, Aishala at I uh, who wrote this fantastic book, Psychedelic Integration. Uh, he talks about people having repeated experiences without integration because they're kind of trying to stay up there mm. um and they they're doing the um the spiritual uh merry-go-round of uh you know experience you know try this experience and then that experience and then that retreat and then this uh you know flotation tank and then this uh vipassana retreat and then this tony robbins seminar mm-hmm. and in a way what you're on the run from there is is sometimes boringness and mundanity and 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 uh, and just you know the ordinary. Um, so I think that's true. And, and and like since my book on ecstatic experiences came out in 2017, I then wrote a uh, a book about ayahuasca tourism in 2018. But for the last four years, I haven't sought any kind of ecstatic experience um, because you know I'm just trying to. I don't know yeah anyway I've actually been bouncing around the world like a digital nomad so I've probably been running away in other ways but uh yeah I just you know I I don't feel the urge to have any kind of ecstatic experience at the moment like life life's enough Mm
0: -hmm.
1: boring life's enough yeah
0: Mm. and learning to cope with mundanity I think is yeah quite extraordinary but you know
1: as I was speaking to you Roger I thought well you know let's face it i've barely stayed in one place for like a month so mm. we always find ways to kind of to run around but yeah you're right so there are these kinds of uh challenges and I, I and i've now i started writing about psychedelics again in the arts of losing control um so that i went to breaking convention in 2015 and first was aware of this psychedelic renaissance and found it fascinating um and I guess I've been writing about it since then. Uh, but I was aware that the kind of difficult experiences that I had are not very researched. Um, and so I started to uh, think about that and write about it. And um, I had a, I, I tried psychedelics again, first time in 20 years, in 2018. And uh, surprise, surprise, I had a kind of messy experience because... Some of the trauma from when I was 18 came back up and I mm-hmm. got in a, I went to an ayahuasca retreat. And I, um, In the days afterwards, not during the retreat, afterwards again, I got into a very dissociated state where I thought I was in a dream or in the afterlife. And, you know, mm-hmm. luckily came back to England and my friends, you know, looked out for me for a few days and then I was fine. Mm-hmm. But that got me interested in kind of, ...messy spiritual experiences... ...quasi-psychotic spiritual experiences... Mm. ...and what are they like... ...and how can people be helped through it? So... ...me and Tim Reed... ...who's a psychiatrist... Um, ...well he actually now set up the Institute for Psychedelic Therapy... ...with Maria Papaspirou. Um ...we... Um, ...edited a collection of... ...people's accounts of spiritual emergencies... ...called uh, Breaking Open... ...Finding a Way Through Spiritual Emergency... It's like 14 accounts. And we asked people just to write in their own words, you know, in their own chapter, what it was like, what they thought triggered it uh, and what helped them to deal with it. So it's this perspective of like, the best experts on mental health are the people who, you know, going through the situation themselves, who've lived, you know, it's all about lived experience is the buzzword they use. Um, um, So we wanted to hear their stories because, uh, you know, often these are people who've been, not really very well helped by either traditional psychiatrists or by spiritual healers Mm. and because neither of those two groups could handle the ambiguity of these experiences that they were both pathological to some extent Mm. Mm -hmm. scary involving aspects of mental disturbance but also beautiful and spiritual uh the spiritual healers would go oh it's it's all it's all fine it's all normal uh it's beautiful and transcendent and the psychiatrist would say this is just mental illness and it was a bit of both mm. so um, there is a, a researcher whose name now escapes me but it's in a fantastic book um, as edited by Isabel Clark uh, on spirituality and uh, psychosis it's a collection of essays mm-hmm. and one of the uh, authors in that talks about the spirituality psychosis continuum like people have long, long debated about the relationship between mystical experience and psychosis. And they've tended to fall down on one side of the thing. Either mystical experiences are totally wonderful and they're the best experience you could possibly have, or they're delusional and pathological and you should avoid them. And the truth is actually somewhere in between. They are, they're, they're in a similar kind of domain of, 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 of human experience. Um spiritual experiences can sometimes shade into psychotic that's why prophets and saints can be very odd people Mm. um you know ezekiel i think lay on his side for uh, 150 days in the old testament and then and then rolled over and lay on the other side odd um and there's many examples of that and um people who have psychotic experience, there's often something quite spiritual and beautiful to to them. There's something meaningful to them about Mm. it, Um, which is why sometimes they resist their diagnosis and resist having medication. So um, I think as a culture, we need to kind of handle the ambiguity, the ambivalence of this domain of experience uh, rather than trying to, uh, you know, collapse it into either Totally wonderful experiences, or, or totally rotten experiences. Mm. Um, if we can handle the ambiguity and our ambivalence of these experiences, that that can equip people better to navigate them mm. and to see that experiences like I went through, they do have their meaningful side, they do have their beautiful side, but they also have their painful side. And you know, we can learn to come to terms with them and learn to kind of you know steer our mind through them. Mm. yeah so that kind of mature balanced attitude not to attach not to averse equanimity
0: and speaking of equanimity what you're talking about really reminds me of of buddhist kind of ideas again it's like Mm. learning to relate to things learning to rather than being overwhelmed by them rather than being in them rather than being undifferentiated from them yeah equally rather than Isolating yourself from them, ignoring them, uh, becoming disinterested and aloof. Yeah. But remaining appropriately involved is the whole business of learning how to do equanimity and and Buddhism, really. Right. Yeah. In in terms
1: of... That makes sense to me. Yeah. There there seems to be um, bits of Buddhist literature which talk about having mature attitudes to unusual experiences, Mm. which is they are also just experiences. Mm um and there's such a thing as kind of fake nirvana and uh, fake jhanas and yeah. you know and i think you can be too um even in buddhist communities as well you can be too uh rigid about the map like yeah. oh you're definitely in stage four now and you're definitely in uh the stage of arising and passing and you know again these things are fluid and mm-hmm. like it's 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 hard to say sometimes where we are in the map
0: mm. but it's interesting that there is a map so while you were talking, I was thinking a little bit about the the default, it seems, for us as humans, when there's an anomalous or different or unbearable experience, is to isolate and ostracize either yeah. the people or the parts of ourselves that hold those experiences. And that, yeah. that is, by default, what is going to go on, Yeah. unless we have some other cultural field that can mediate or reverse yeah. that process a bit.
1: Yes, Right.
0: Um, And just wondering, yeah, in the sense of what might a culture look like that could, uh, like you say, have a mature approach to experiences that are by their nature, confusing, threatening, undefined, and maybe stretch our ideas about what it means to be human, either individually or what it means about how we should relate to each other. So these experiences seem to almost like threaten, they threaten us, they threaten what we think we are. And they threaten the fabric of society. So, mm. what kind, what kind of culture, what kind of institutions or cultural, what would happen that would support us to develop more maturity? Do you reckon? What, what might that look like? Not that I expect you to know. Mm. But the mm. short circuit, the basic kind of ostracization that seems to happen where people get overwhelmed, mm. and equally to, to not, either you know elevate as you say these experiences to things that define the way that we do things and uh there's an, yeah. there's an amazing book by Will self i don't know if you like will self it's mm. called the book of dave mm. and i'm not sure whether you've read that one mm. but it's essentially about a, uh, a taxi driver in the present day who has a has a sort of fleeting relationship with someone has a child mm. loses access to that child goes mad writes mm. writes a very polemic and intense kind of thing in a in their journal, gets it professionally printed and bound, buries it in the back garden of that person. Uh, Thousands of years later, after the sea levels have risen, that is dug up and used as the basis of society and religion by the inhabitants of (laughs) the archipelago, is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, archipelago of the UK. Right. And this extreme, like, vitriolic, and it makes me think about John of Patmos and Revelations, makes me think about, like, sometimes ecstatic experience is taken too seriously.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: sure. So what might the field look like?
1: (laughs) There's another... It reminds me of... uh, I still haven't seen it, but a friend told me about it. Like, um, there's a play about a post-apocalyptic society Mm -hmm. where there's an episode of The Simpsons, which becomes the prophetic text. Oh, really? Yeah, and, 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 and there's a first generation, they've seen the episode... The second generation is—it's just by word of mouth about Mister yeah. Burns and stuff like that. Anyway,
0: that's extraordinary. I love that.
1: Yeah, but um,
0: he does that in the in the book as well with the uh, the fast food
1: song If you remember, that, yeah,
0: like, tuck a fried chicken and a pizza hut. Right, and they're doing these extreme rhythmic like practices around. Yeah.
1: The lyrics <laughs> to
0: that. So yeah.
1: Well, um, I think it's changed already an awful lot uh, since the nineties. Mm. Britain has changed remarkably. Um, towards a kind of a culture which is, you know, takes mental health and well-being much more seriously and has even almost kind of fetishized it. Mm. Like, you know, we're, we're like a well-being society now. And, you know, and, and it has become this, I honestly think it's become like a replacement religion. Yeah. Like we don't have a God anymore. We have well-being. Mm. And, and, it, and, and it people kind of say banal things like, everyone has mental health. You know, like what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we are very much in a culture of uh, anti-stigma and disclosure, to, but almost, which is great. And I, I am, I, I, you know, I'm a part of that. And I, you know, I'm kind of disclosing. I mean, I, I've moved to being incredibly like self-disclosing writer. You know, and. and and that culture of self-disclosure is, is, the, is the culture now and kind of everyone's blogging and TikToking and just disclosing. Um, so it's changed an enormous amount and, that, and that's good. But um, as it changes, you, 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 you realise new issues. And for example, I think the anti-stigma culture has to some extent outstripped um, what, what actual resources there are for help and therapy mm. yeah. so that everyone's like oh I've got this I've got this problem I've got this diagnosis um, but you know um, first of all there's not there's not necessarily enough actual you know therapists available on the NHS mm-hmm. so there's long waiting lists uh, secondly there's just prescriptions for uh, antidepressants go up every year and now I think it's about a fifth of people are on antidepressants but most importantly, I think, is um, there's a risk that it makes us less capable of bearing suffering. Um, and, and seeing suffering is uh, something that should be fixed uh, and should maybe be fixed by the state or by you. But these are equally, in a way, um, utopian schemes. The idea that you can fix suffering and the idea that the state could or should fix suffering. Um so, yeah, and, 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 you know, everyone has their, you know, their preferred solution to human suffering. Mm. Oh, we just need to legalize psychedelics or, or we just need, uh, you know, full socialism or we just need everyone to be trained in, in CBT. Um, whilst the older kind of spiritual traditions from which we've taken our therapeutic techniques were like suffering is the human condition. And you can, you know, yeah, if you want to really train hard, maybe you'll get enlightened and be liberated from it. But otherwise, if you're not a sage, you are going to suffer. Mm-hmm. That's, that's you know, that's that's life. So, so that's one thing, you know, I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. But so our culture has changed a lot in terms of, I think, anti-stigma. Mm. Um, but I also think, you know, the, the, the reason there is stigma towards mental illness is these are disturbances. People become disturbed and they are disturbing too. Like every society has social norms and people who are really uh, unwell disturb the social norms, but not just that. Um, they are, you know, when you, when you have serious mental illness, you're also incredibly egocentric, mm. Like you don't mean to be, but you are really stuck in the prison of your ego mm-hmm. and and you're behaving very toxically for yourself and for other people. Mm. So that's another reason why there's stigma. Like people say, oh, we should just treat mental illness like physical illness. But mm-hmm. if you have a broken leg, you're not, um, you know, acting incredibly self-destructively. You're not lying, stealing, cheating, trying to destroy your relationships. Mm-hmm. But if you have a mental illness, often that is how you are behaving.
0: Yeah. Which is where it kind of starts to jar with, the, as you say, everyone's got mental health kind of, yeah, because actually, it's it's not like a little bit of depression, it's not like a little bit of anxiety, yeah. When one is seriously ill, yeah, it's different,
1: yeah, yeah, and it's and it affects the the entire family and the and the entire society, yeah. So, I, but I, but I do think I I, I am optimistic that, um, mental illness does get its power from its. Um, from our fear of it, mm-hmm. and I and I think we have we have we have made it um, certainly things like depression and anxiety um, we have normalized it. Um, so I, I I think we've changed now. We're less afraid of it now. However, we are, we have been less good at giving people the tools to deal with it. Um, disclosure and anti-stigma isn't enough. You have got to help people kind of you know think okay this I, I give them the confidence. They're, they're going to be able to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the other thing that's developing now, and I see you beginning to develop, is a bit what happened with depression and anxiety 20 years ago is now beginning to happen with psychosis. So people are disclosing more about it. And maybe we're beginning to oh, have more of a public conversation about it and, and think about new ways to relate to it. Because I think psychosis is a big uh, bogeyman in our culture and and that you know when we're dealing with people who are who are you know really disturbed it triggers our fear uh, our, you know our, our deep cultural fear like psychosis is is the kind of the anti enlightenment you know in terms of the 18th century age of reason and psychosis or folly is is the kind of you know it had a place in christian culture there was such a thing as holy madness mm. but in the enlightenment it's just the anti enlightenment state mm-hmm. Uh, the sleep of reason produces monsters, as, as Goya put it. Mm. And I think um, we need to come to some kind of terms with psychosis and rec- recognize that this is a human experience as well. And it's not just, it's not an inhuman experience. It's a human experience. Mm. It's a place the mind goes to. And it's a place the mind can come back from. And I wonder if psychedelic research will help us think about psychosis in a different way, if people are more used to going to unusual places. And I wonder if the kind of work that SciShore does and so on, like um, it's when people are having bad trips, they're in a temporary psychotic state. Mm-hmm. And I think sitters are learning to work with people in those states. And I wonder if everyone who works in kind of um, emergency wards, could be given that kind of experience of being a being a sitter um you know get get a get or go to a workshop at, at Syshaw or vice versa just to, to, to have a dialogue between um psychedelic harm reduction and um you know um emergency wards and I know actually some people working in the area have so Tim Reed who, who set up the Institute for Psychedelic Therapy he used to Uh, work on a kind of emergency ward, of a a, a psychiatric ward of a a big hospital. Uh, Near Tadmore, who who runs Safe Shore, uh, he used to work at an emergency psychiatric ward. So we've got so much to improve on in terms of our culture's understanding of and relationship to psychosis. Um, And I'm curious as to... You know, everyone's focused on, oh, psychedelics, you're going to have ecstatic experiences, mystical experiences, wonderful experiences, which is true, I'm sure, you know, that, and that's fascinating. But I also wonder if it will help us to relate to people suffering from psychosis who, you know, I think are in uh, often, you know, are really suffering. I mean, like, you know, really acute human suffering. And so if we can help to um, help them feel less alone and, and just banished from from mainstream society, that would be amazing.
0: And that's it. And that's what it feels like. It feels like it's something that has to happen in society. It's Mm. a very appealing uh, fantasy, in my mind, the idea that you Mm. can do it all alone Mm. and by yourself. And it's also the greatest uh, challenge to the whole thing. Uh, And it's this, like you say, where this natural process of ostracism that is our basic way of dealing with suffering Mm. it seems, yes, comes in automatically. And it's about uh, improving our ability as a society to acknowledge and maybe decide to bear suffering. And that's where yeah. things start to get into the kind of religious territory, mm. in my mind. And so something, for instance, that makes me, that interests me, is that in, a, in, for instance, in Ayahuasca culture, mm. and particularly in the cultures that surround the kind of ayahuasca tourist uh, mm-hmm. vibe there is a sort of fetishization of dissociation mm-hmm. and there's a fetishization of really intense grueling unpleasant bodily experiences whereby you defeat the body mm-hmm. and transcend the body and mm-hmm. break the body mm-hmm. so there's a sense of, of desire to become tougher uh, which of course I can imagine emerges out of the, the context that ayahuasca emerges out of it's, it's a jungle medicine You've got to be tough. So in terms of what psychedelic integration looks like in, as we do it at psycho, for instance, and as, as we are thinking about it from the Western perspective, we might not want to glorify dissociation so much. We might want to encourage more, as you say, of this willingness to bear suffering and what it means to be in a body. Rather than make the suffering so great that we escape it,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. so yeah. I'm interested in like where you see. So, like, what might it, so for me? I can't escape the fact that it looks like religion, in the sense that as a so I'm practicing Vajrayana Buddhist, like Tibetan Buddhist, mm-hmm. and the point of a lot of that practice is that you can't separate samsara and nirvana you can't separate cyclical suffering and being free of suffering uh in the sense that those two states are part of the same reality and that true realization of part of reality and not the other part you know you can't, yeah it's not really yeah, sure it's not really the point right and that something and someone is left out and left behind and that's not part of what we are seeking to grow. I suppose, yeah, my question is just about, is, uh, do we need a new religion? <laughs> Will this turn into something religious?
1: You know, I remember, uh, I I was just reading Mark Aishala's book this month, The Psychedelic Integration, and he said he was inspired partly where he went to a kind of Zen, the only, I think, Zen Buddhist place in India, a guy, a place called... Um, I can not remember the name of it now. Anyway, Uh, it has a a kind of, the only Indian Zen master there. And I went there as well uh, in like 2017 and 2018 to the same place with the same master. And it was there that we used to chant this this Zen chant about, you know, uh, without Nirvana, no samsara, without samsara, no Nirvana. This very body is the Buddha. You know, this very land is the pure land's, you know the you know the poem I mean? Is that in your tradition as Not well? Not in my tradition, but it's very, very similar. <laughs> yeah, it's it kind of... Jap- I think it's a Japanese Zen poem. The inseparability of,
0: yeah like, you know, defilement, impurity, form, yeah. and emptiness, and it's...
1: Uh... It's actually... It's a poem by the kind of Hakuin, mm. the third Chinese uh, patriarch of Zen. Mm. Um Anyway, it's your and I love that, and it may you know, and, and it, I think it overcomes that kind of mm. that splitting, that tendency of splitting. Yeah. Do we need a new religion? Um, I have thought about this as well, and I thought you know, will there be a kind of new psychedelic religion mm. or religions? And there are. Mm. Um, Do they conceive of themselves in that way? Can we conceive of stuff as religion? E, the, yes, the, the, and there are, there are several. I mean, that's we're in a very fragment, fragmented spiritual um, landscape. Uh, Charles Taylor, the philosopher who wrote Secular Age, said that you know since the 60s, there's been um, a supernova of uh, options for transcendent experience. Uh, I, I, he called it a galloping pluralism on the spiritual plane. All these different subcultures offering different kind of avenues to transcendence, different uh, paracosmic landscapes, You know, different myths. Um, so, um, there's not one new psychedelic religion. There's, Mm. there's countless, Mm. uh, and, um, which relates, I think, to
0: something that you mentioned before. It sounds like that gives us in a sense, a decision about what we want to become and how we want to shape human nature and what we think is important and not. Yeah. And
1: it's a multiverse, um, uh, I did a talk at Breaking Convention where it was saying, like, you're not just choosing your uh place to do psychedelics, you're choosing your universe. Uh, am I going to this uh, you know, self-optimized capitalist luxury retreat where it's all about becoming a hug, you know, self-optimized entrepreneur? Am I going to this plant, you know, shamanism? Uh, retreat or this uh, ancestral you know Mm -hmm. these these different frameworks are different metaphysical universes um i'm also curious about how it's going to relate to christianity because i think we're 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 less post-christian than we think Mm. uh in the 60s and 70s there was there was a kind of secondary move from from psychedelics to okay so first of all to um Buddhism and Hinduism, and a lot of trippers, uh, you know, well, a lot of the most famous Western Buddhist teachers started off from psychedelics. And, um, but there was also people who, who joined charismatic Christian movements, the Jesus freak uh, scene. So this was, this was a big thing in, in Western churches. They became kind of ecstatic post-psychedelic. And then they, that was all covered up. Uh, the fact that churches like Vineyard... Uh, and 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 through them, places like h t b in london um were inspired by hippies who 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 found Jesus on drugs hmm. um so this is a covered up history a, a chapter in the history of ecstatic christianity um but there were these this big wave of the Holy Spirit in western churches in the seventies and eighties and it was in, you know the spark of it was was psychedelic uh to some extent um so I'm curious about whether that will happen again. And I'm curious about the conversation between psychedelic communities and Christian communities, which barely happens at the moment, but it happens a little bit. You are beginning to see uh, psychedelic chaplains uh, being trained uh, in Christian traditions and Jewish traditions, Buddhist, humanist, uh, at places like Harvard Divinity School Um Uh, and you're beginning to see organizations set up on kind of psychedelic Christianity Um, so but it's yeah so so I'm keeping my eyes on that Mm. then you get some people saying oh we need to bring back the Eleusinian mysteries Um, so I'm personally I'm I used to really want one religion and one myth so that everyone was under the same sacred canopy Rather than under little, you know, umbrellas of a few thousand or, or just, you know, f- a few ten people or whatever. But now I, I think I accept that decentralized, rather, you know, fragmented um, situation. Mm. I think unless there's, a, you know, a major societal collapse, that's how it'll be. We're in this kind of stage of late antiquity mm. when there are lots of cults. Mm. Um, But who knows, I mean, like, who would have predicted that Christianity would become the official religion of the Roman Empire? Um, So it's just, it's so hard to predict, Rodri, like, where the next thing will come from. Like, I I imagine if you'd asked the the Yuval Harari of of the first century AD, he would have never predicted that Christianity would become the, Mm. the kind of dominant religion. So I just can't tell. What will emerge? I imagine what what will emerge will have a very different relationship to nature, and will will I don't know. I mean, it will it will, it will need to be something quite strong. Mm. I here's the, here's two possibilities I see. Um, I see a kind of dark mountain type uh, neo primitivism, mm. like oh we are we are sinful. Uh, you know, we we've blown it with all our technology. The deep greens. Deep it? greens. Mm-hmm. And then I also see this kind of Promethean, Extropian, yeah. transhumanists, um, you know, let's leave Earth, uh, and let's, uh, and let's, um, the singularity and all that. Exactly. You know, the, the, the things, the big things that are going to change are AI and the kind of, uh, we're going to create a super intelligent, super intelligent computers and, um, genetic medicine mm. and genetic modification. And I feel like my culture, particularly in the UK, it's interesting, like spiritual culture in the U S it's, it's particularly in California. It's much more that kind of Promethean extropian transhumanist Mm -hmm. in the UK. It seems much more kind of deep green, dark mountain, Mm -hmm. anti-vax, anti-genetically modified foods. I'm personally more Californian Promethean extropian. So I'm, I'm, I'm Mm pro-technology. Um, but i think that you know like obviously the two sides could could do with a bit of each other <laughs> they could do with balancing each other out like not fetishizing and 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 worshiping before technology but not um and having a respect for the power of nature which is more you know that it knows how to do things better than we do often mm-hmm. um and for things like indigenous wisdom and practices but not not going back to the dark ages like mm-hmm. you know seeing seeing a place for for, tech, for technology and seeing that the human story is is we're going forward. I think you know what I mean. We're not. We're not. Yeah. We're not going to exist in homeostasis. I think we've always been uh, a species out of balance. You know, like yeah. tumbling forward, mm-hmm. um, and you know, so I, I I think there can be a yearning for a kind of static yeah. society, and I just think that's 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 a, that's a myth. We've never had that. We've never had a society in harmony. We've always been a kind of like just, you know, tumbling forward, I feel. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, like, and I, I don't know what, I think psychedelics uh, in in those two kinds of uh, deep green, neo-Druidic and the kind of Californian dreaming of the, of the future singularity, psychedelics, Get incorporated into both those yeah. religions, don't they?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a clear vision of whatever it is that you choose to see, yeah. whatever context you choose to put yourself in.
1: And they can both tend towards a kind of bullshit version of themselves, Um a kind of romanticization of, of the primitive, or um or a kind of exoticization of indigenous wisdom, and or you know just. It's all the same thing. There's just this thing called indigenous wisdom, rather than a patchwork of lots of different worldviews, mm-hmm. or a fetishization of technology and of, you know, tech billionaires, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And the power of will and the power of, Yeah. And the mythos of the
0: self-made. Uh,
1: yeah. The, Ni- the Nietzschean self. Yeah. yeah. The Gnostic, uh, the
0: Gnostic uh, rocket, right off. Yeah. Right off the plane of suffering.
1: Yes. 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 Yes.
0: Yeah. We've been here before.
1: It sounds yes. like
0: we've made so many references yeah. to all these attempts
1: from the past. It yeah, make sense of these things, and I think it's 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 good to be aware, by the by, of um, and this is where like I've been reading about the history of occultism as well, because I've been I've been writing a history of Western spirituality and evolutionary spirituality, mm-hmm. and it's good to be aware of the kind of the fact that psychedelics have also been used for like as 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 means to power. Yes. And, you know, I, you know, you read Alistair Crowley and he says, you know, he's basically saying this is for the left hand path. This is for you to become a dark magus. It's about power. Mm -hmm. And, you know, either you will control drugs with your incredible will or they will break you. Mm -hmm. And these are also two ways people frame drugs. You know, like they become like the Mm -hmm. ultimate acid test.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Are you a superhuman magus of power? Or, um, are you a broken, uh, untermensch, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and I think, again, that's a very splitting thing. So like, if you have a good trip, you come by going, I am, I am a Teutonic ubermensch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you have a bad trip, you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an untermensch. And I'm a, I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I'm a, I'm, the, I'm the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, having, you know, being able to handle, uh, mature maturely handle ambiguity and ambivalence Mm. to avoid both the kind of supermensch temptation and the uh the untermensch uh kind of you know masochist trip or whatever Mm. um but it's good to be aware of that um and again in 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 shamanic culture they you know they as far as i'm aware they talk about you know there's different paths and you can go down the path of being a a curandera, or go down the path of being a, a, a brujo mm-hmm. using this for power. Yeah.
0: Which but, is... Yeah. Oh, God.
1: Well, I just... I think we sh- everyone should be told that. Yeah. You know? Totally, yeah.
0: And this in the history of ayahuasca use, for instance, like as far as we understand it, really, there's only knowledge with, for instance, the Shipibo people of it being used for the last couple of centuries, max. Yeah. In that very small area. It's mm-hmm. not really moved out of... Uh, you know it's very very recently and with the pressure on tourism yeah. that it's become seen mostly as a healing thing and before that it was seen as a a, a weapon as a tool for dark magic yeah. as something that shamans who are interested in power would take yeah. in order to gain more power so that they could attack other shamans and
1: yeah, perpetuate exactly.
0: so in a sense yeah yes. I think that that's an, a, very, a very nuanced and important point that yes, we can I, be told both
1: and I think every even Humphrey Osmond said that I mean I read his his letters with Aldous Huxley which is a fantastic book and he says something like um, I think it was Osmond that there is this um, you know ev- everyone working with psychedelics needs to be warned of this kind of of these power aspects yeah. uh, and, and and the temptation of of uh, that they can make to people mm. um, towards their egos Um yeah. And what, what what's happening is, you know, very rich entrepreneurs are taking them. And it's just, I think it is real risk of it's just totally feeding their egos in, in unhealthy ways for them and for their societies. Mm-hmm. But it could just as equally be... Um, Psychedelic researchers, I think, uh, can go on ego trips, and psychedelic uh, psychiatrists, and all, all you know, all these people can go on big yeah. ego trips. Apparently, interviewed someone who does works on harm reduction in five meo DMT, um, Victoria Weschner. I think I, I pronounced their surname right, and she she talked about this epidemic of messiah complexes yes, among five dmt five MEO DMT facilitators. Like yeah. she said, like, and I said like, what multiple cases where people think they're the Messiah. And she's like, yes, there's been multiple cases. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, so, um, I better mention just this in the, just this year, I've started this project, um, to research, uh, challenging psychedelic experiences. It's, and we have this website, challenging psychedelic experiences.com. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, a study of difficult psychedelic experiences as in where the difficulties last for longer than a day beyond the trip itself. Could be for a week, a month, a year, whatever. Um, and we want to know what those experiences are like, what kind of difficulties they can uh, can come up and what helps people. So again, it's like a lived experience, you know, focused on the, the individual as, as, as we want to hear about their experience and what they found helpful. So we're doing a an online survey and then follow on um, interviews, face-to-face interviews with people. And that's a team with like, it's about eight people in the team from like David Luke and Rosalind McAlpine and Ashley Murphy-Beaner and Katrina Michelle and, and others. So we're doing that this year. Yeah, which is a new thing for me as someone from the humanities, but I'm basically like, you know, it's me plus seven psychologists. So it's... a. Uh, so the hope is that we find out information about what these experiences are like and then we can maybe begin to match different types of difficulties. Like, okay, these group of people all had panic attacks and social anxiety and quite a few of them were helped, say they were helped by this kind of intervention. Or well, these kind of people all had dissociation and they, you know, do you know, what I mean? do you know what I mean? Like matching certain clusters of problems with certain types of uh intervention mm. so yeah that's what we're doing
0: and it'll be interesting because a lot of the examples that you've listed there are i'm very aware that we're talking about a psychedelic experience and mm. then talking about very non-psychedelic means of mm. making sense of those in a yeah sense. ones which bring in human agency and bring in our capacity for meaning making
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean we're in dialogues with our um our subconscious or our imagination or with the divine and and it's, it's 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 not just that meaning is handed to you on these experiences there is a kind of co-creation
0: thank you very much it was probably a very good place to leave it on that uh, on that kind of note of uh, yeah discovering the technologies of
1: making, yes
0: making sense of these experiences
1: thank you Rodri. like if anyone's listening to this and and they'd like to take part in the survey mm-hmm. i'd really appreciate that I, I, if you've had a kind of Difficult experience where the difficulties lasted for longer than a day. Um, you can find the survey at challengingpsychedelicexperiences.com. Um, you can, the book on spiritual emergencies, uh, which is not just about psychedelic spiritual emergencies, but often spontaneous or after a meditation retreat or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's breaking open. Um, and we have a newsletter. It's a Substack. stack um, ecstatic integration (laughs) so they can uh, they might want to subscribe to that as well
0: Mm. yeah all amazing resources for people seeking to make sense of their own lives and experiences and grow the their capacity for being human yeah exactly sounds like a task for us all but yeah thank you Jules really appreciate the conversation thank
1: you Roger nice to see you yeah see you again soon
0: Right, you heard the fella. You can head to challengingpsychedelicexperiences.com if you'd like to contribute to that research. And if you have a psychedelic experience, challenging or otherwise, that you'd like to unpack and explore in the company of other voyagers and questioners and seekers... In a supportive peer-led environment, we have our monthly Psychedelic Integration Circle, which is online. And you can find more information about that at psychareuk.org and click on the link to integration. And that's it from me this time. Thank you to Jules, our most esteemed guest. And keep an eye out for the next episode. And coming down that pipeline, we've got so far a psychedelic psychoanalyst working politically to make sense of how we might legalize psilocybin in society. We've got a 5-MeO-DMT researcher, that's toad venom, uh, psychedelic vertebrates, conservation and the politics of extremely intense experiences um, and more. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast who has something interesting to contribute to the discussion of psychedelic harm reduction and how we make sense of this truly extraordinary experience that we have unlocked and that the plant world gives us, then do feel free to get in touch. Again, my email is rodri at psycareuk.org R-H-O-D-R-I at org. Otherwise, I'll see you next time or maybe you'll hear me next time. I guess that's the more appropriate thing to say. Thank you for listening and happy